Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and today I am really delighted. I'm so excited to welcome financial literacy expert and best-selling author, Sharon Lecter, to the show. Now, Sharon has advised two U.S. presidents on the topic of financial literacy, and she co-authored the international bestseller, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and 14 other books in the Rich Dad series. In 2008, and we all remember when this happened, when the economy crashed, she was asked by the Napoleon Hill Foundation to help re-energize the teachings by the Napoleon Hill Foundation to help re-energize the... Okay, now I've got it doubled up in here. Let me back up. She was asked to help re-energizing the teachings of Napoleon Hill. Sharon, I told you I was excited. I can't even talk. Her best-selling books with the foundation include Three Feet from Gold, which I've read. It's outstanding. Outwitting the Devil, which I definitely want to ask her about. And Think and Grow Rich for Women and Success in Something Greater, Your Magic Key. Now, Sharon is also featured in the movie Think and Grow Rich, The Legacy, and on the national television series, World's Greatest Motivators, which was created by our mutual friend, Lynn Kitchen. She's got a whole lot to share here, and I'm not going to um, kind of put them out here. We're just going to talk, and she will cover everything that we need to cover. Sharon, welcome to your Partner in Success Radio, and I'm sorry I'm stumbling all over you. I really am excited to chat with you. (laughs) Thank you, Denise. I'm delighted to be with you. It is a Monday And it's 2020, so let's just blame everything on 2020. So how are you doing today? How is everything in your world and with the Napoleon Hill Foundation? Well, everything's fantastic. Um, You know, everybody looking, instead of looking back at 2020, now's the time to be looking at how to make 2021 even better. Sorry about that. I agree with you. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, there's just so many complaints about 2020. I prefer to look at it as a lot of lessons learned and a lot of things to learn. So I don't complain. I mean, I, when I do complain, I'm really just kind of joking about it. But it really has not been horrible for me. And I'm very pleased to say that I've just gone about my business. Business is good. I feel fine. It's working for me. I mean, I'm just not letting all of the horrible news bother me all that much. What can we do about it? All we can do is do our best, right? It's a time to absolutely, it's kind of like a a global reset. And we can look back and say, you know, what's working in our lives and what's not. And from the standpoint of, um, you know, we've been able to redefine things that are important to us and things that aren't so important. And um, given what's happened in the world, certainly you talk about Napoleon Hill, the book out winning the devil that I released talked about a time when there'd be a fear of death and a fear of poverty. And certainly that has been 2020 more so than any other year before. And so I think it's time for us to really say, what can we control and understand that we have the opportunity to, 
create the life we want, and those opportunities are all around us. I mean, successful businesses solve a problem or serve a need. We have a few problems and a few needs right now, so take control of where you are instead of looking back. Look forward and say, how can I make the next chapter better than the last? Exactly. And one thing that I have noticed a lot is that we are communicating different differently. I mean, we are finding new ways to be communicators, to be leaders. We are actually listening, I think, a lot more than perhaps we used to because it's easy to get caught up in, oh, you know, I've got this going on and look at what I've got and I've got this course and I wrote this book and you get breathless and you're, you're so busy telling people what they should be looking at instead of now. I think we're actually saying, you know, maybe we need to communicate and listen more. Are you finding that? Well, certainly, and you know, the, one of the benefits of everybody working at home is we've got a lot of our time back. We're not spending the time commuting so much, and so we have the ability to choose how we're going to spend our time and what we're going to invest it in. And quite frankly, as you mentioned, you know, it's, what are you listening to? What are you reading? And um, this, you know, we've also had the, you know, the fear of isolation. Everybody having to stay home. It's a time to reach out and and touch people. But yeah, I mean, being um, on Zoom or on online or on the telephone has never been more important to stay in touch with people. That's true. I'm not a telephone person. I've never been somebody to pick up the phone and chat. I've just, I'm an introvert. I like to be in my own brain. It's a lot of fun in there. But recently, well, recently this year at any rate, I decided that I needed to actually hear voices and talk, not the ones in my head, but, you know, hear other people's thoughts and their words and actually pick up the phone and just say, hey, how are you doing? That has been very interesting to me because, you know, I've reconnected with old friends. I've learned new things about current friends, and I'm getting much, much better about staying in touch, not just on social media or through text or, you know, email. I'm actually talking with people, and that's odd for me, I have to say, but I'm getting used to it and I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I think, you know, um, you have an opportunity. You know, fear does one or two things. It makes you paralyzed and you want to crawl under the covers and turn off the lights, or it can motivate you. And um, this year, certainly a lot of people have withdrawn, and you've seen an increase in depression. We've seen an increase in suicide. And so it's so important as we continue um, thinking about people we care about, if we see them withdrawing, we need to reach out and support them. And even with our in, in ourselves, because our, all of our schedules, everybody's schedule has been turned upside down. I mean, before 2020, I was on the road 75 to 80% of the time. And this year, I've been home. And so I was like, okay, this is this is different, <laughs> but how am I going to find the same level of impact, same level of joy, and you just seek out new methods, new ways to find that joy and how to impact um, as many people, maybe just in a different manner. Exactly. And, you know, that brings me to a lot of the questions that I have that I wanted to chat with you about today, and that's money, money mindset. How do we make money? How do we replace the money that so many people lost their jobs or their businesses? I mean, I'm guessing that, yes, there's a fear of becoming ill, but I would guess, and I could be dead wrong, that the money is the worst fear right now. How do I provide for my family? How do I take care of 
my my employees, are you finding that the money mindset is something that people really, really need to be paying attention to right now? Well, absolutely. I mean, so many people um, lost their job or were furloughed and um, are you know, suffering financially. And so now's the time to really think about where is your revenue coming from? Are you taking the time to buy or invest in assets that can support you? I mean, if people are dependent on a paycheck, they're going to be hurting. And so how can you convert that? How can you do something on the side? How can you become an affiliate on a website that you believe in so that uh, you can help promote it and start getting some cash flow? But our money mindset is because we don't teach children about money in school, it's developed at home. And so when we grow up, we hear things like money doesn't grow on trees, save for a rainy day, we can't afford it. All of the pinch for pennies, all of those things are negative. And so as a child and a young person, we hear money negative, money negative, money negative. And so subconsciously, we develop this thought process of scarcity. And until we see it and we can look at it and get rid of that thought process, we cannot convert to a money mindset of abundance and realize that we are in control of our own destiny. When it comes to money, you're either in control of your money or it controls you. And I help people become the one in control of their money so that they can find financial confidence, not financial distress. Exactly. And one thing, you listed a lot of things that we hear as kids, and I heard them all, but the one I never understood, and I still don't understand it, is filthy rich. What the heck does that even mean? And it's not nice. I mean, I get that, you know, it's really, there's a lot of jealousy there, I guess. It's just ugly. It is, and I think jealousy is envy, that type of thing. And, you know, the rich are greedy, you hear that too. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are there are um, people who are poor who are greedy. Um, if you think about the number of nonprofits in the world, they are supported by people who are wealthy. There are wealthy, you know, there people, it's not the money who makes you who you are, it's who you are. So if you're greedy and you get a lot of money, you're going to be more greedy. If you're generous and you, and you make a lot of money, you're going to be more generous. So, you know, the thought process is, you know, all rich people are evil. No. Uh, rich people help contribute a lot to our society. They create jobs. All right. Are there rich people who are bad people? Yes. Are there poor people who are bad people? Yes. And so, um, you know, the Bible, people say, you know, money is evil. But, no, the Bible actually says the love of money is evil. And so if you're if you're rich because you're serving and you're doing something good, so, for instance, you are providing value, you're solving a problem, serving a need, and you become wealthy doing that, then you're adding a service and you're being compensated for it. And more than likely, you're going to be giving back in a more generous way. I find that. I, I know a lot of very wealthy people who have started foundations, who have started nonprofits for you know medical help for people for whatever reasons. And they are pretty much all the way around just good people. And, you know, they've got that money. They want to see that money help other people. I said this to somebody the other day. Um, we were talking about something slightly different, but you know, this girl was saying, yeah, I want to start a podcast, but I want to, you know, I want to have people like you, Sharon, who are, you know, very important people, who are very well-known people, who have a lot to share, 
but I don't know that this person would talk to me. And my response to that was first my eyebrows went up and because I have found all of my life that people who are very successful genuinely want other people to be successful as well. It doesn't matter if you're in the same train track, you're doing the same thing. They probably want to help you be better. Isn't that true? Yes, I think people are surprised at how accessible um, successful people are. And, you know, the inverse, again, is, is this fear of not feeling like you're good enough. Um, I'll, I'll speak to a thousand people. I'll give out my private a- email info, you know, send it info at SharonLector.com. And very few people will reach out to me. And it's, it just amazes me because people are reticent to reach out and take action. And that's what, you know, if you want to improve your life, we are all where we are today because of the choices we made before today. And if we want something different in our life, we need to make different choices. Exactly. I was watching um, a webinar with you, and um, who is the, the man? I'm sorry, Mr. Green, is that right? Um, yes, Don you, Green. You were talk- Don Green, exactly right. And I was watching that. I watched the whole thing. And, of course, we have a mutual friend, Lynn Kitchen, And I kept saying, I want to have Sharon on my show. And then I immediately kicked into imposter syndrome, even though I know better. It's like, oh, she's not going to talk to me. My second thought was, we have a mutual friend, Lynn Kitchen. So off I went, and here we are. So, you know, sometimes you just have to ask. Get out of your own way and just ask. The answer is going to be, well, there's three responses, right? No, yes, or they're going to ignore you, which is essentially no. So what are you waiting for? Exactly. And, you know, if we talk about, I have the personal success equation, and people can download a guide, personalsuccessequation.com. But it talks about, you know, your passion and your talent. And most of us stop there, and that's just us. You have, feel like you have to do it on your own. But true, true success comes from times A, which is association, times A, action, plus F, having faith in yourself. And that power of association is how you and I are together today. The power of association, when I start working with people as a mentor, um, typically it's their association and their lack of self-confidence, faith in themselves that we need the most work on. And entrepreneurs will start a business, they'll start having a tremendous amount of success, and then they start plateauing. And I'll ask them, when was the last time you expanded your network? When did you go to a new group? How are you, you know, do you have the right mentor? Because that power of association is what keeps you exposed to new audiences and new opportunities. And then having confidence in yourself. You know, as an entrepreneur, when you're when you run your own company, it's lonely at the top. Everybody's looking to you for answers. That's why it's so important to have a mentor or a board of advisors, people that can support you when you get into difficult situations and can help help you choose the right path. Oh, exactly. I have a whole list of things I wanted to chat with you about. The money mindset that we just spoke about, the four ways that you can make money, the one thing all wealthy people have in common, and we can too, the power of association that we just spoke of, and the power of leverage, which we're going to talk about. But really, before I get too deep into it, I really want to talk about Napoleon Hill. I have been reading him since, oh, geez, I was a teenager, I think, when I came across him. And I found some of his books in a garage sale of all places, and I still have them. They're paperback, they're worn out, they're 
orange because, you know, the paper is just practically rotted. Those books are not going anywhere. And, of course, now I listen and, you know, I, I watch and I've got the newer versions of the book. But those original books are honestly among my most precious items in my house. So let's talk about Napoleon Hill and how you got involved in this, because I think that's a big part of your story. Well, Napoleon Hill, you know, um, met Andrew Carnegie in 1908, and he was charged with determining the, the law of success. And Andrew Carnegie introduced him to all his rich friends. Of course, at that time, they were all men. And so he interviewed 500 men around the world, and over 25 years, he interviewed them and synthesized what they all had in common. He also interviewed thousands of people who considered themselves failures. And so in 1937, he released the book, Think and Grow Rich. And it is like the doctoral thesis. And the reason it's as valid today as it was back then is that it's, it is not one man's philosophy. He truly said, what do all these folks have in common? What's their thought process? And so the 13 steps that are described in Think and Grow Rich are the common elements of success. And that's why today it's as still as valid as when it was released in 1937. And so many of today's gurus, their information can be found as a derivative of Think and Grow Rich. And so since then, and in fact, when he released it in 1937, he was kind of frustrated because he said, even though this tells you what you need to do, a lot of people won't do it. And that's why he actually sat down in 1938 and wrote out Winning the Double, which the title scared his wife. It was hidden away for 73 years and um, put away in the vault. And that's when the Napoleon Hill Foundation reached out to me in 2008 during the economic crisis. I wrote Three Feet from Gold for them to try and reinvigorate his teachings. But the month we released Three Feet from Gold, Don said, we have this manuscript, I don't know what to do with it. And he sent it to me, and it blew my mind, because even though it was hidden away for 73 years, I think it was really intended to come out for today's world, because it talks about fear. It talks about fear holds us back. It talks about how the fear of criticism, the fear of poverty, the fear of old age, the fear of loss of love, the fear of death, and how it cripples us, and how a lot of that happens when we were kids. You know, he talks about you know, it takes on every taboo there is, sex, politics, religion, education, you know, diet. It's amazing the stuff that he talks about that was way, way before his time. But it helps identify how we can break through that fear, um, understanding definiteness of purpose, understanding self-discipline, understanding, you know, um, controlling your environment, controlling your time. And so it's really, it's been an incredible journey, and I, lo I love being involved with the foundation. I've written four books with them. I have a couple others that we're working on. And um, it just, after having built the Rich Dad organization, which is the largest personal finance brand, I'd, and being asked to step into the largest personal development brand, it was hugely, hugely humbling to me. I read Thinking Gurich when I was 19 in college, had no idea the impact it would have on my life. And I'm I'm honored to be related to, associated with them right now. See, that is so powerful, and I love that story. Thank you for sharing. I had not listened. I thought I knew every piece of paper that ever came from Napoleon Hill. I've read him since I was young. I think 14 or 15. I don't remember exactly, but I just 
I was hooked. I read him and went, oh, my gosh. And I'm a voracious reader. I've read since I was three. So it was just meant for me to come across Napoleon Hill. But I had not heard of Outwitting the Devil. It was brand new to me. I'd never heard of it. And I saw something on Facebook. People were talking about it. And I said, what are y'all talking about? This can't be a true title. This is Napoleon Hill. And I instantly went, no, 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 no. This is, you guys, you're pulling my leg. And then I went and looked for it. Because a friend of mine who I think very highly of, he said, Denise, you've got to read this book. Quit arguing. Go get the book. I wasn't arguing. I was questioning. But, you know, he's man. I'm woman. We, We communicate differently. But the thing is, I went and I found it on Audible. And, of course, I hear you in there. So, you know, I was already very familiar with you. And I have to tell you, Sharon, I will put that. I don't watch much TV, if any at all. I don't enjoy it. But I will listen to that book. I'll put it, you know, on my iPad, put it on my pillow, and I'll fall asleep listening to that book. So I guess I'm, you know, I've absorbed a lot of it in my rest. I don't know, but it's an incredible book. And if you would, I would love for you to go into a little bit more about why that book was held for so long. I understand it because I've read it, but 73 years is a long time for a a book to just sit in a box. Right. Well, when it came originally came out, or when he originally wrote it, his wife worked for the Presbyterian College, and she was afraid she'd get fired, so she forbid it to be published. He died in 1970. She died in the 90s. Her sister just died earlier in like 2000, um, around 2005, six, something like that, and that's when the manuscript came into the possession of the foundation. And um, they had not really been doing a lot of new novel things until the economic crash in 08 when they reached out to me. And so Don Green sent me the manuscript says, what do you think? And so I took it to um, San Diego where I do a lot of my writing. And it was, of course, typed on a handwritten typewriter. It had handwritten notes from Napoleon Hill in it. And within a couple of hours, I was just overwhelmed I said, this has to get out. It just was, it really transformed how I thought, and it was so impactful. And as you said, the Audible, I required our, our the company we work with to use two different actors because the book is based as an interrogation of the devil to release his his secrets of how he controls us. And so we had two actors. One, the devil's voice is real grovelly, and then the other one is a you know different actor. And so it's almost like a radio drama. And in the book, he says, you can believe that I'm talking to the real devil or an imaginary man-made devil. The question is, will you derive any benefit from it? And so we have lots of churches use it. You know, it's absolutely mind-boggling when you read it, how it can penetrate your subconscious and, and reveal things that have been holding you back. It is, and I have to tell you, it took me multiple tries to get through the first chapter. I kept saying, what? It would bother me. It would bother me. It would almost make my skin crawl a little bit. And I can't even tell you why. I think it was just because, if I had to guess, because it wasn't the Napoleon Hill that I was so familiar with or thought that I was. And once I said, stop it, you know, get over yourself, really listen to this book now I'm addicted to it I I don't even know how many times I've heard it read it listened to it written notes about it it's really part of who I am right now 
But in the very beginning, I kept saying, I don't think I can do this. This this is not right. I don't. And that's when I understood why his wife was so afraid. I got it. Well, part of it is, you know, we, we people are built up. So Napoleon Hill is this patriarch of wisdom. And, and, we, and outwitting the devil, he basically opens his kimono and talks about all his own weaknesses, his own fears, his own doubts. And um, so for someone who has, you know, has him on this giant pedestal, it's threatening. And it, but at the same time, it's it's so honest in in what he shares that it makes you understand. Okay, everybody faces fears. I'm not alone. And that's exactly. You're not and, alone. And that's what I finally got to that point. And once I you know could sit and listen to it, like I I'm, I'm in my office all the time. I write. I build websites. I'm you know work with social media. I will turn that thing on. Put it on my desk, and I'm listening, but not really listening. I'm probably just, you know, a lot of it is by osmosis. It'll stay on all day long, all day long. And at some point, I'll hear something that I've heard a dozen times, but I go, oh, stop, stop. And I have to write it down because it's a new, new way of thinking. Even though I've heard it, I was finally ready to hear it. Yeah, I tell people all the time, I read Thinking Grow Rich every year. And I go, the reason I do that is that the book doesn't change, but I do. And every exactly. time I read it, I find something in there that I need right there at that time. And, you know, I think we mentioned this earlier. There really are no coincidences. The book was written. It was, I'm guessing, put in a box or, you know, some kind of container for all of those years, almost 75 years. But it didn't get destroyed. It, You know, the house didn't burn down. It wasn't discarded. It sat there waiting, didn't it? I mean, it's it was meant to be put out when it was put out. I don't, I don't believe in coincidences. I think there was a very valid reason that we'll never understand why that book is now available. Yes, there are no there are no accidents, and no. I think it was. Re- I think if it had really come out in 1938, it might have tempered the success of Think and Grow Rich. Um, so I think. It was intended for what's happening in the world today. I see so many people say it saved my life. It made me, you know, so many people are struggling. And for people that are, you might have somebody in your family, you've talked to them so you're blue in the face, you can't get them out of their funk, give them this book and it may very well do it for you because it really does open your eyes to things that control you and the negativity that keeps us down. And gives you the tools to start releasing that fear and that negativity. And these days, negativity is everywhere. And I do mean everywhere. My best advice to anybody listening, turn off the news. Turn it off. Delete it. Start reading Napoleon Hill. Start reading Wallace Waddles. Start reading anything by Sharon Lecter. I mean, there's reading is going to be the best thing that I think saves your life. I really do believe that. I couldn't agree more. Listen, how many because people? Because what happens? You said running in the background. So many times, you know, for years I would let the news run in the background. I didn't realize I was just getting uptight, and I didn't realize that even though I wasn't really listening to it, my subconscious was. And so, pay attention to to your environment. That's part of what's in outwitting the devil. You know, what are you in an environment that's supportive, that's conducive? 
Are you in a, uh, hanging out with people that support you or want to hold you back? How are you spending your time? Are you letting your time go by, or are you investing your time in building a better future? All of those things bring you know, and, and then look in the mirror and ask yourself, you know, am I being honest with myself? Am I doing what I need to to create the next best chapter of my life? Exactly. And listen, we all we all have imposter syndrome. I have we all have Tony Robbins for crying out loud admits to having it. Napoleon Hill did. I think the best thing that we can do is figure out who it is that we want to be associated with, whether we ever meet them in our lives. I know who I'm willing to listen to. I know who I'm not willing to listen to. And I don't play. If I've cut you, you know, Fox News, whatever it is. Look, I cut cable 10 years ago. It's one of the smartest things I ever did for my life. It's garbage in, garbage out. And like you, I would have it going in the background. You know, I wasn't really, you know, paying attention, but I, what I noticed, Sharon, is that I didn't feel good. I would notice that my back hurt, my hip hurt. I was feeling, you know, and I couldn't figure out why. Once I cut cable, I cured myself. All of that went away. I was listening to other people's ideas about how I should live my life. I don't do that anymore. And I wasn't even aware of it. That was a sad thing. Well, most of us aren't because we become robots. We do the same thing every day, and we just kind of um, glide through life. And that, uh, you know, we need to experience the goals and the take the actions, step outside our comfort zone, because that's how we discover new opportunities. Exactly. I wanted to ask you, because Napoleon Hill has been gone a very long time, and but I want to ask you, have you had an opportunity, or has had Mr. Green had the opportunity to, to meet people who knew Mr. Hill in life? My friend Ben Gay third is known, you probably, in fact, we do. you do know him, I asked you. I mean, he's known as the, the last mentee of Napoleon Hill. So do you know people right. who absolutely spent time with him, and can you share any of their thoughts? Oh, certainly. Bernie Dorman, who's the founder of CEO Space, who passed away earlier this year. He did. Um, he used to call him Uncle Nappy. And and then Napoleon Hill's grandson, J.B. Hill, is a friend of mine and, and very involved with the foundation. And, there, you know, of course, he died in 1970, so it's been 50 years. So a lot of the people that knew him personally are, um, you know, are gone. But uh, certainly the people who've been impacted by his life are continuing to grow in numbers. Do you think he would be surprised? by how well-known he is and how well-loved he is? Um, actually, no, because I think he had a huge vision for what he wanted to do. Um, you know, he, sac- a lot, he sacrificed a lot personally to follow his dreams. And um, he, when he joined forces with Clement Stone, that was when... Um, the impact really started escalating because Clement Stone was a much, much stronger businessman. And so I think they realized that they were, I mean, he, he realized that he was very successful before he passed. And I think the longevity of that success might have surprised him. But that's, you know, a lot of that is due to the work of people continuing to share his message and honoring him. 
didn't he say, and I could be wrong about this, but didn't he at one point say that Think and Grow Rich might be, I guess, outside of the Bible, the most purchased book in the world, but the least read? Is that, am I making that up? Um, well, it is true that Think and Grow Rich is, is often quoted as being the, the, the second most um, purchased book in the world behind the Bible. Um I've not heard and the least read. So I would probably say it's probably the least put in practice. A lot of people read it and don't take action. That's sad. And listen, I'm guilty of that myself. I've, I'm actually going through the book again. I do it at the end of the year because I'm looking you know, forward to what am I going to be doing. And I know it's just a calendar date, but still we all buy into it. So it's a new year, it's a new year. But at the end of December, the month of December, I go back through this book, and now I'm saying, you didn't do that. You didn't. Dang it, Denise. <laughs> so I guess, I guess we all do this, but maybe I wasn't ready, so now I'm ready. Now I'm paying attention to the one thing or the two things or the eight things that I have not done or have not properly done. So for me, it's always, it's a primer for life. It's always, okay. How far did you get with this? How did that change you? Ooh, how do you see it now? It's an amazing book. Yes, it is. And it's all and it's just it's one of the few books that truly is evergreen. Um, the principles in it are, are founded in tremendous research and it's as good today as it was as it when it was released in nineteen thirty seven. You know, I often think about him because he spent so much time in his own head, he had to. I mean, he was a very busy man. He was dealing with a lot of very powerful people. Did he sleep? I mean, did he rest much? I have the sense that he didn't sleep a whole lot. That he didn't no, have. No, I think I think if I, I don't quote me, but I think I've heard from Don and from other resources that he slept about five hours a night. But I, I'm not quite sure where I got that. So. I've never actually heard it. I've always just kind of assumed it. Okay, so we've ta- and thank you for sharing all of this about you know him and and the books because I like I say I find him fascinating. But let's go back to some of the things we really really wanted to share with our audience. And the title of this talk today is "Assets Are Sexy." What does that mean? Well, the the one thing that all wealthy people in the world have in common is they have income producing assets. And um, that means and you're financially free when the income from your assets exceeds your monthly expenses. And so in school, we're taught to work for money, paycheck. And so we are our only asset. And so I help people understand that you need to, it's not what you do for your paycheck that's important. It's what you do with your paycheck. And are you using that money to reinvest in yourself, buy, build, or create additional assets so that it doesn't, it doesn't have to be millions of dollars. Most people think it has, they have to have millions to be financially free. Um, when I first met Robert Kiyosaki, he was financially free, and he only had, he had two small apartment houses. He was making a hundred thousand dollars a year from the apartment houses, but his living expenses were around thirty-five thousand. And so that's the lesson I want people to understand: is buy, build, and create assets, so that they're generating the income to afford you to live the style of life you want. And that that is what's not taught in school. 
that is what I teach. I want people to take control of their financial lives. Again, it's not what you do for your paycheck. It's what you do with your paycheck. And it kind of starts with the four ways we make money. The second book I wrote in the Rich Dad series is called Cashflow Quadrant. And it has four letters. The two on the left side are E and S for employee and self-employed. And that is what school teaches us. Again, you are the asset. You're the, if you don't get up and go to work, you don't make money. And that's, you, that's what gets us tired. There's only so many days in the week, so many hours in the day. And the amount of money you can make as an employee or a self-employed person is finite. The right side of the cash flow quadrant is B and I. B for business owner or I as an investor. And you can own a lot of businesses. You can invest in a lot of different things. This, the right side of the quadrant is where your money is working for you, and that's through assets. And the amount of money you can make on the right side is infinite. And so I tell people all four quadrants, I still make money out of all four. I'm an employee of my own company. I'm an accountant by training, mentor, and speaker, so S income. My husband and I make far more money as business owners and investors, and that's the the secret of financial freedom is to understand the power of assets. So I coined the term a few years ago, assets are sexy, and the older you get, the sexier they become. But because I want people to focus not on income but on assets, buying, building, creating assets. Assets can be rental properties. It can be businesses. It can be a downline in a network marketing company. You know, anything that makes you money while you sleep. Writing books, intellectual property is the quickest way to create passive income. I love when I read this, assets are sexy. My eyebrows went up a bit and I went, what? I, those are not two words honestly, that I ever put together. Now I get it. And you're right. But the biggest asset we have, if we handle it properly, is us though, right? Because we have to make these decisions. We have to understand what our assets are, how we can help other people, how we can be a servant leader, how we can write a book. We can't just get up in the morning and go, okay, here I go and go back to bed at night. So, well, I didn't do a darn thing. So we really do have to I think, if I'm hearing you correctly, determine what kind of asset we are going to be. Right. And that comes back to the personal success equation. Your passion, your talent, times your association, times taking action, plus F for faith, having confidence in yourself. So many people fear that they're not worthy, they're not good enough. You said imposter syndrome. And, you know, I want to encourage people to realize you know, a lot of us have been through things in our life that stopped us in our tracks. And um, I certainly have. I lost a son eight years ago. And it took me a couple of years of living my life in neutral and a state of numb that um, I almost retired. And I find, got a lot of pushback from family and friends. And I realized that I'm still here for a reason. And I want everybody listening today to know no matter what's happened to you, death, divorce, financial setback, illness, you're still here. You're still here for a reason. And you can help others that are going through what you've been through by taking the step to solve problems and serve needs. And it's so important for each of us to realize we we can give back. I grew up with a father 
that would ask me every night, Sharon, have you added value to someone's life today? And so I want everyone to think about, have you, you know, are you adding value to someone's life? You have every opportunity to create whatever you want in your life. And by that, and I'm so glad that he said that, a lot of parents don't, or they just don't, they just assume that you know how special you are. But would part of that question, how much value or have you added value to yourself today, also be a a big one in that list? Yes. And, you know, the that I'm not good enough essence is so important for you to get past, to know that you have every right to create success. You have every opportunity, every right to create the next best chapter. You just have to and take the every action. Day. You have to do it. Every yeah, day, do every it. day. Right. I remember when your son passed. I'm so sorry. But like I say, we've all we've all been through. We all go through something. All of us. It's not just you know the next door neighbor. It's us. We have to figure out how we're going to cope, survive, and really help other people. And I think that is so so important about the story that you're sharing because you do an awful lot of helping other people, whether it's through your books or through your projects. And I want to know how in the world did you meet um, Kiyosaki? I mean, is that his name? Um, yeah. Rich Dad? Yeah. Well, he actually, how, he how did you bit, meet him? Well, he had an idea for a game and he came to talk to my husband. Mike, Mike is a well-known intellectual property attorney and he wanted to see about the opportunity to, to patent the game. And Mike called me, and I met Robert at the first beta test. I'm the only one that got out of the rat race that day. And I was already teaching financial literacy, and the game was very, you know, helped really teach the principles I was teaching. So I volunteered to help him commercialize the game. We turned it into two separate games. And during that process, you know, I told him he wanted to charge he wanted to charge two hundred dollars for the game. I said, well, you probably should write a brochure to explain the philosophy because two hundred dollars is pretty pricey. And um, in that process, he asked me to become his partner, and we actually wrote Rich Dad Poor Dad, <laughs> intending it to be a brochure. And it took a life of its own. And we thought our brand was cash flow, but no, our brand ended up being. Um, Rich Dad, and that was the first of 15 books that we wrote together, and I, we were partners. I read, led the company as its CEO for 10 years. That's how it all began. There really are no accidents, are there? I mean, no, things happen no, no, the no, way no. they're supposed to happen. Yep. It's amazing. Okay, so let's go back. I'm probably going to ask you to come back another time because you've got so much to share. So, And I'm going to do it on the radio, so you can't tell me no. So I'm going to invite you back, maybe in the new year or you know, maybe in the spring, so we can talk about a lot of the things that we're talking about today and where we've gone, how things have progressed, how people are doing, you know, what new advice and input do you have. So would you please come back another time? Absolutely. Terrific. Okay, so 
one of the things, and thank you, one of the things that all people, all wealthy people have in common, and you can too, what is that? I've got to know, what is that? I think it's mindset. Those are assets. Assets. Income-producing assets. Every wealthy person in the world, no matter what language they speak, no matter what their address is, they all have income-producing assets. They understand. That's why you've heard the term, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. It's because we aren't teaching kids about money in school. If we want to really level the playing field so that every child has equal opportunity, we would make sure we were teaching kids about money in school, but we're not. And so the rich get richer and the poor get poorer because they learn about it at home. And I want people to learn it from, you know, it's time for us to take control and teach ourselves about um, assets because that is the magic key, income-producing assets. Because once you have an asset, it becomes your employee working for you. And mindset is so important. When you're thinking about assets, when you're thinking about what kind of asset are you, you're thinking about, do I want an apartment building? Do I want to own you know, rental property? Do I want to have a fleet of cars that I rent? Whatever it's going to be. You have to have the proper mindset, which means that you have to constantly be digging into who you are, who you are deep down, you know, your spiritual aspect, your intellectual aspect. You have to know, I think, who you are and what you bring to the table. And I suspect that a lot of us don't really know that just yet. Well, and it changes. Certainly 2020 has changed a lot of people. Um, you know, I, before 2020, I used to talk about the uh, outwitting the devil, but the, the, I thought the biggest pervasive fear was um, fear of criticism because everybody was trying to keep up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. And that's no longer the case. I think people are truly, you know, things have changed a lot in the world. They have. And in some ways, you know, I'm fascinated. In some ways, I think there's a lot of good change. And, you know, I hate the word pivot. We see that a lot. It's calming down a bit. But when I, it's first started, I, I, I go adjust. I, I don't like to pivot either because if you have your no. goal, your goal doesn't change. You no. just adapt. You, you adjust adapt. and adapt. That's exactly right. And I will always change it in my head when I hear pivot to adapt. And I've watched some, you know, people who you would normally never hear of make some amazing adaptations that have helped other people. School teachers, I mean, let's talk, we're talking about school. Um, I hated school, hated it, hated it, hated it. But, you know, it's one of those necessary evils. But I've been watching school teachers just say, okay, we are not going to leave these kids sitting in their bedroom sucking their thumbs. We've got to find a way to adapt and find a way to get them, you know, back into their desk, whether they're sitting on the floor with a laptop or wherever they are. And I have to give, you know, teachers, educators some huge props for just saying, we got this. We're going to fix it. And by golly, they are. Yep. So let's talk about leverage, the power of leverage, using other people's money, time, and resources. Does that fall back into the money mindset? Well, that's the power of association. So that ah. you know, 
um, leverage means you're you're using other people's time, other people's resources, other people's um, people to help you build what you're doing and the opportunity to really. So, for instance, when we built Rich Dad Around the World, um, it was to we were able to build it more quickly because other companies who had established presence in other countries came to us wanting to spread what we were doing. All right. And so that's exactly, that's called leverage. You find somebody who wants to take what you have and share it with their network, their people, their territory, and leverage um, prints and rental properties. When you get a mortgage and you have a rental property, that, that debt is leverage. It helps you leverage the amount you put down on the property. You own the rental property. Your tenant is paying you rent that covers the mortgage. So the mortgage on that property is good debt. It's leverage, helps you leverage your opportunity to expand your assets and your net worth. So leverage is the opportunity to increase the impact and increase what you're doing. Got it. I'm writing that down. So the final thing that I wanted to ask you about, and then we're going right back into all the the fascinating things that you've done, it's time to play big. What does that mean? Well, when I lost my son, um, as I said, I was kind of living life in an area of numbness. And um, about two and a half years into that, I woke up and said, you know, I either need to retire or I need to play big again. Because I played a very big game when all my other companies worked with Disney, Warner Brothers, you know, and I... uh, I said, I, I need to wake up. And I said, but I'm not going to do it alone because other people are suffering. So I launched a movement called the Play Big Movement. I have a private Facebook group called Play Big Movement with Sharon Lecter. invite everybody to join. It's free to join. And the Play Big Movement is about showing, sharing the things that I'm doing to play big again. And once the biggest thing was making the decision. I made the decision to play big again and it worked, right? It worked. I All of a sudden, I started having things happen all the time. And it was like amazing to me that I was able to change the decision and start having things happen to me in a way that was much more positive. And listen, I understand what you're talking about. When you're in grief brain, you're not functioning. And it does take... In my experience, in my observation, at least two years before you wake up one morning and it literally feels like somebody squeegeed your eyeballs and you can see clear again. You know, the colors are fresher. You can smell again. It's it's grief brain. It's There's nothing much you can do about it, to be honest. But once you do decide to play big, and I completely understand what you're talking about here, things do change. You know, you you can see again, you can hear again, you can taste again. You're like, "Oh. Okay, this is what this is where I'm going now." So, you know, thank you for sharing that. I don't think I'm in that group, but I will be by the end of the day. I'll get my, my fanny over there. So, you earlier or I mentioned that I think you talked about you were um you advised two U.S. presidents on financial literacy. Which presidents were these? I'm curious. Well, I was with President Bush and President Obama. Uh, Bush the Younger? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, gotcha. What did they learn from you? Anything? Let's hope you know presidents don't always learn 
because they're busy. Yeah, well, it was, very first, um, it was the very first President's Advisory Council, and um, I was absolutely thrilled and honored to be part of that. And it was you know, an opportunity for me to really create, um, share the, the thoughts and process of entrepreneurs. A lot of the people that were a part of that were not. Um, they were government officials and very different uh, arenas. So I had the opportunity to step in and say, we need to do this as both a parent as well as an entrepreneur. And while I was there, we did pass the Credit Card Act um, in 2009, and that <clears throat> prohibited credit card companies from um, soliciting kids on college campuses, which for me was a huge deal because my oldest son had gotten a credit card debt. And so that was a huge win. I can't take credit for the bill, but I can certainly take credit for the fact that I was a squeaky wheel related to the issue and proud of that. But again, it, you know, we, I'm. it's so important that we pay attention to the um, what's important to us as individuals. And that is our personal financial health. And as people don't think about that, and we have to. We have to take control of our own financial situation. As I said, you are the CEO of your own life. And so we have to help each other create what we want in life. Oh, exactly. What are, Sharon, what are some of the, let's just take a top three. When you're talking with somebody or you're talking with presidents and you're talking about personal finance, and as far as I understand, the government was never really too, too interested in entrepreneurs. They were more interested in numbers that they could track. You know, who's, what are the jobs reports? Who, what's going on here? Entrepreneurs, in my opinion, make up the biggest and the most important part of our financial world. But when you're talking with somebody and they're saying, I, you know, I don't even know where to go, what would be the top three things that you would say they really need to start looking at and taking care of? From a personal finance perspective, figure out where you are. Too many people put their, um, <laughs> put their head in the sand. And I, I, you know, I want people to understand that it's important to be in control of where you are, but you can't control it if you don't know where you are. And then understand that, again, how are you saving money? How are you investing money? And look at your debt. Okay, If you are mired in bad debt, it's hard to take control. It's hard to get out of, from under it. And so I want people to really um, take control, be honest with yourself, all right? Look at your credit score. Get your credit cards under 30%. You'll see your credit score go up. Get rid of the bad debt and start investing in assets. When is credit cards, is that one of the biggest debts that America faces right now? I think it is, but... Am I wrong? Well, it is, except the, you know, the silver lining this year is that people haven't been able to go out to eat, they haven't been able to go out to entertain, so there's actually been a decrease in household debt as a result of it, so that's kind of the silver lining. 
But the issue is how, what are you going to do now that things are starting, you know, when things start opening up, are you going to use this opportunity to keep your debt low and continue paying down your debt? Are you going to get yourself in trouble again? You know what I did? I realized maybe two or three years ago that I was running up some credit card debt. I wasn't paying attention. It's easy. It's really easy because now all of our credit cards are on our computer. They're on our LastPass. We can go to Amazon or Walmart, just hit a button. All your information is filled in, and off you go. And I started to realize that I was taking that easiness, if you will, and running myself into debt that I didn't like. So you know what I did? I went to all of my credit cards. I didn't shut them down. I did pay off most of the small ones, but I didn't shut them down, but I paused them. I don't have a credit card that works right now. I mean, they're fine, but they're getting paid every month. But I now use my debit card because it's cash, and I have to stop and think, do I really want that? Do I really need that? It's a mindset. So I shut everything down. I'm paying them off, and chances are I'm probably not going to open them back up again. Yep. And, you know, it's of course, when you shut down credit cards, you also, you know, it in, impacts your available credit. So that right. pulls down your That's credit. That's why I paused you do them. Want, you do want to think, how can I do it? How can I get rid of the, you know, just keep the credit card as, as long as it doesn't charge you annual fees while you get your credit score up? But it's so important for each of us to pay attention to our debt because that's what controls us more more quicker than anything. And not just, you know, on paper because you're worried by your debt. You're worried about, oh, geez, did I pay that? Can I pay that? Am I going to have, you know, fees associated with that? Now that's starting to really take over how you're thinking if you're worried about debt all the time. You're not really thinking, okay, how can I be an asset? What are my assets? You're too busy going, oh, geez, oh, geez, oh, geez. Do I need to get another job? Do I start mowing lawns? I mean, it consumes you. It it really does. Yes, it does. It does. And you can't sleep at night. Right. Okay, so we've got about two minutes left, and I really wanted to have you share a, a bit more about why you do the things you do. I mean, clearly you are somebody who is very, very impactful and you love what you do, but how did you get started? What drove you to this? Well, as I think I share with you, my uh, oldest son went out and left in September to go to college, came home in December of 1992 and um, had gotten his credit cards. And I was devastated, absolutely devastated. I said, this is crazy. How is this possible? And it was because he was went to college, and they offered this, offered that, and they said, wait a minute, how is that possible? And they did not share with us that they were doing that. And so credit card companies were getting all these kids in trouble by welcoming him to the campus, free money, free pizza, free T-shirt, free money. And it was and crazy, absolutely crazy, because that is what gets people into trouble. And we had to stop that predatory lending. And that was December of 1992, and that's when I dedicated the rest of my career to financial literacy. 
And I'm glad you did because I I know what you're talking about. Look, my cat, I kid you not, my cat got a credit card. I don't know how that happened. I mean, you know, I got a credit card for his name was Sawyer, you little bastard Griffiths. And he got a card, Sawyer Griffiths. He was a cat. It's just amazing, absolutely amazing. Listen, we are running out of time. Is there anything else you wanted to share with our audience uh, before I let you go? And I definitely want you to come back in the new year. Absolutely. I would invite invite everyone to reach out to me, info at SharonLector.com. You can get the guide on the personal success equation if you go to personalsuccessequation.com. And I would love to hear from everybody. Info at SharonLector.com. Thank you. Sharon, it has been wonderful speaking with you. I am so appreciative that you took the time, and I am a true fan of your work. And a fan is not a word that I use easily because I think it's overused. I thoroughly enjoy and appreciate your work. So thank you for all of the wonderful tips and the advice that you shared with our audience. And before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes and really anywhere else you consume your business podcasts. Just look for your partner in Success Radio and take us along on your success journey. Sharon, thank you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.